thanks to that and to celebrate that. Um, to the Malchow family and uh, to the Davis families, thank you for your obedience to Jesus and the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, we're reminded, Go therefore, Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So thank you for your commitment and your offering with these children being baptized here this morning. To members and participants of the New Covenant, thank you for your continued support, especially the last two and a half years. It's been a crazy wild ride, and we are so grateful for each one of you and the way that you have supported us. And so as we gather today, today is not, as Annie said, today's really not about asking for commitments. Today is about giving thanks for commitments. And the most important commitment that we give thanks for today is one that comes from God through his son, Jesus, through the power of the cross and through his resurrection. Today's message is, is about the power of community. That's the word that's used in the book of Acts multiple times to describe this early church, koinonia. I, I grew up knowing that there was a, a Lutheran Bible camp in New York called koinonia. Some of you may have heard of that. Um, that was a Greek word that is defined as community. But literally, it means more than just community because it's used in different ways. So it might be a common food that we share. And so when you think about churches historically, at least in the last two or three generations, you think of church potlucks, right? And uh, that is community, that is koinonia. And sharing food with those who do not have enough food. Uh, many churches have food banks where members and community members can go and, and ask for, uh, for food uh, supplies, for help. And so we've always understood that community, koinonia, is an integral part of who we are as, as a church. When we think about this koinonia, what we hear also is that it included sharing financial resources and all the ways of being community. Let me share a few verses here with you. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and set it at the apostles' feet. In this story, we hear about a Jewish Christian man. Now, this is in the early church, and so most of the Christians were Jews. They had been a part of the disciples, and um, they had followed Jesus. Jesus was a Jew. 
all the disciples were Jewish, so a lot of these early Christians, when they shared the gospel with their family and friends, it penetrated into the Jewish community. So, so Barnabas, this guy that's mentioned here, is a Jewish Christian. It means that he's a believer in Jesus, but he's also a Jew. And so his name was actually Joseph. But believe it or not, in Jesus' day, there were lots of Josephs, like there were lots of Marys. And now today, you know, we try to find unique names for our children. Back then, they weren't so concerned about that. There was another child, okay, another Mary, here you go. So, well, you already have three Marys. Ah, one more is not going to hurt. So the very common names, they use them all the time. And, and so they would, they would add a nickname so that they could distinguish this Joseph from other Josephs. And so this particular Joseph was called Barnabas. And that meant son of encouragement, which identified him then as one who was an encourager, one who was known for his kindness and for his support for others. Barnabas was also a Levite. The Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were connected to the temple. They took care of the temple. Um, but by the first century, not all the Levites were working in the temple. And uh, so we don't think that Barnabas was probably, um, he, he was not a priest, he wasn't somebody that was connected to the temple. Um, but what we do know is that the Levites were, by and large, very wealthy and very highly educated. And so Barnabas would be known as someone um, who, who owned a lot of things. And, and your wealth in that day was defined by your assets of land and houses. And uh, so the more land and the more houses you had, the wealthier you were. And, and so he was, uh, he was one that owned land and houses. And so Barnabas um, also was born in Cyprus. Now Cyprus is that little island off of Greece and uh, Turkey. And so Cyprus was part of the Roman Empire and so he was a Jew that was born in Cyprus. That means that he grew up knowing a lot about the Gentiles. The Romans would be considered Gentiles. And so as the church began to grow into the Roman Empire, into those Gentile areas, Barnabas became critical because he was one of the early Christians who could translate between the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and the Jews in the Roman places, the Gentile lands, and, and so he became a, a, a very important person in the early church. He had lived both in Jerusalem and in Cyprus, but because of his faith in Jesus, he was a great encourager of, of the Christian missionary movement. He really wanted to see more and more Gentiles introduced to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Barnabas becomes important to this early church community, this koinonia, because he demonstrates for them and for us how to give. As I mentioned, houses and land ownership were the principal sources of wealth and also of social standing. And in the Greco-Roman world, you would make loans to other people but you would only make loans to people in your social class. So if you were part of the wealthy elite, you would not make a loan 
to the poor, uh, certainly not the poor and the needy, and you would not even make a loan to the middle class. You just made loans to the wealthy. If you're middle class, you didn't make a loan to the wealthy or to the poor, you made loans just to those who were middle class. So you didn't cross social barriers. And in this early church, what was unique about Barnabas is that it tells us that he sold a piece of land and he took the proceeds and he laid it at the disciples' feet, at the apostles' feet. Now, as I mentioned, normally in this Roman Greco world, you would just do these loans, exchanges, gifts with people in your social class. So what is important to understand, I think, is when, uh, because it seems kind of like a little bit odd that, that Barnabas would put this proceeds from the sale of his land at the apostles' feet, at their feet. What, what it means really is, is that he's breaking a social norm. He is saying to them, you can use this for the poor and the needy, any who have need. And so his donation is a private contribution to the common purse. So normally, if you gave a donation, you would get recognized, you would get honored. They would maybe even name something after you. Now, I know that doesn't happen in our culture today. Laughter. But what, what we do understand is that even though that was normal and expected, that is not what Barnabas wanted. And he gave it at the apostles' feet so that it was understood that he was giving this for a social class that he wasn't supposed to have any concern for. And that's what made the church, this early church, so radical. Was that they were not going to be confined to the Roman expectations. It also is part of why the early church became such a threat because they began to challenge the, the societal norms of the Roman Empire. So this money that Barnabas donated went to help the poor and the needy. Now, I just want you to know um, one of the gifts that one of the missions that we supported this year was a fund that we have called um, Helping One Another. And, and the inspiration behind that fund uh, comes from this scripture text. Because especially when COVID started, we wanted to make sure that no family was left behind here in the church. And so the Help One Another fund was created uh, so that we could help families who were in need at that time. We still want to do that, and that's why we continue to raise money for that fund. Now, the one phrase from today's reading that I just shared with you that still kind of um, awakens me, moves me, is this. About th this is a description of this early church, that there were no needy people among them. Literally, that what that says is that no one lacked for anything in that early church, in that koinonia. It's not a radical concept in the early church that no one lacked for anything that they needed because that concept had been borrowed from their Jewish roots. So this idea that 
that you should help the poor, the needy in your community, in your koinonia, in your fellowship, comes out of Deuteronomy. In chapter 15 in particular, there's a whole chapter on the book of Jubilee. And the Jubilee was an, an anniversary celebration every seven years where if you had a loan given to one of your social class and they still owed you money at the end of seven years, then you were to forgive that loan because they were obviously in need. They were not able to pay their debts. And so you may kind of think about where we got the idea of a seven-year mortgage. Or maybe after seven years, you can destroy your tax documents. <laughs> or the seven-year investment rule. I mean, just take a look at some of the financial language that we use today, and there's lots of seven years involved with it. And so that was kind of the foundation that they were building this early church upon was just as that they were not to have people in need in their koinonia from the, from the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, they also were not going to have anyone in need in the early church that might need help. And so at the end of every seventh year, it said, you must cancel the debts of every Israelite who owes you money. And then in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 15, there should be no poor among you. There should be no poor among you. For the Lord your God will greatly bless you. In the early church, about 5% of this Jewish and Roman Greco world uh, were considered to be um, wealthy. So 5% would be wealthy. And then the middle class was the next 10%. And so there was a big poverty section. The poor consisted of about 85% of the population. And so there was a lot of need. Most wealthy Christians sold land or houses in this early church and gave it to the apostles, gave it to the church as needed so that the poor and needy were cared for also so that they could continue to move the mission of the church into Gentile places. Now, when we talk about selling houses and land, uh, this, was not, this was not a um, complete liquidation, you know, like when you see the furniture store, everything's going. Um, it's, it's not like that. It's not an immediate liquidation. It was a gradual liquidation. As the church had need, then people would sell a parcel of land or a home and provide that for the church. How they did this in the early church is that they, they didn't force people to give up their money. It wasn't like a mandate you have to give. Um, it wasn't a form of early communism. I know some people have thought that. This happened because it tells us in verse 33 why this happened. The apostles, it happened because the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's blessing was upon them all. It happened because the apostles testified powerfully 
to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we think about that powerful proclamation, that is what inspired people to give to the church, to these apostles. The money was freely given. No one claimed that any of these possessions were their own because they all understood that they all belonged to God and that God had blessed them and that they were going to continue to share those blessings with others that had need. It was the power of God's grace that worked through the apostles and their preaching. That's how they did it. In the early community, Koinonia, the community of believers, it says that they were filled with great power and great grace. The reason that they had that grace and power is because they heard the proclamation from the apostles that the one who had been crucified was raised again from the dead. Now prior to this section of scripture that we've been looking at this morning, two apostles, Peter and John, had gone to the temple to pray. And on the way into the temple, they have an encounter with a crippled man, a beggar, and they don't have money to give him, but they do have the healing power of the Messiah. And so they reach out and they heal this man from being a cripple. And so he is able to stand on his own feet and to walk into the temple. He had not been able to go into the temple because he was unclean with his uh, handicap. Now he has been made whole and he can go back into the temple with Peter and John. Peter and John go in and Peter begins to teach and preach in the temple. And he boldly proclaims the reason this happened was because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in good fashion, in that boldness, Peter and John are arrested and put into prison. And so it's the koinonia, this fellowship, this community of early Christians that pray for them. They're praying for continued boldness. Don't, don't go cold now. Don't go weak on us here, Peter. Keep up that bold proclamation that the one who was crucified has been raised again from the dead. And then they also asked this. They prayed that, that, the, in, um, that they would be safely released and that they would be able to be free to once again proclaim the good news. They prayed this, this koinonia. And it was the next day that they were presented before the council for their investigatory trial. And what they were blamed for doing was for proclaiming the name of Jesus in the temple. And they said, well, the only reason we're doing that is because people asked us. How was this man healed? Because the, the man who had been lame, who was healed, was still with them. And they said, it was through Jesus. And so they kept trying to tell Peter and John, we'll let you go if you just stop saying Jesus. And they said, we can't. There's no other explanation for why this man stands before you today. And finally, they let them go. 
The church knew that God had heard their prayers and had answered their prayers. The early church knew that that boldness, that proclamation was going to continue. And because of that power and grace, verse 32, it says this. All the believers were united in heart and mind. They were all, all united with heart and mind. Friends, this is what I want you to know this morning. That that Jesus who Peter and John proclaimed in the temple is the very same Jesus that we speak of today. The one that took the sins of you and me to the cross is the very same Jesus. And the, the one who died, that Jesus who died, is also the Jesus who is raised again from the dead. What I want you to know is that that Jesus is here this morning with us by the power of his Holy Spirit. I want you to have confidence that that Holy Spirit is here. As we baptize these children, the Holy Spirit is here and will come to these children. Take courage. Even if you may be experiencing hardship, as Alex spoke about, even though you might encounter threats or even the threat of death, God is already working a new thing in you because Jesus, who was crucified, has been raised again from the dead. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.